But sometimes you also have to, to, to take forward-thinking decisions and try to, not to foresee the future, but at least to know where the, where the world is going and try to be, get there first so your people will get some benefit out of it. And in the case of Bitcoin, I mean, it's just, the system is just beautiful. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of LATAM Dialogues, the podcast series in which the team at LATAM Dialogue bring you up to date on the most important news stories from Latin America over the past few weeks. I'm Sonia, Editor-in-Chief at LATAM Dialogue, and you just heard an extract from an interview with El Salvador's President Bukele. Now, Bukele is a super millennial hip president who is often seen wearing a backwards cap, and he recently made history as his government passed a law that would officially introduce Bitcoin as a legal tender in El Salvador. This is the first time this has ever happened in the world, and under this law basically means that Bitcoin must be now accepted by firms when offered as a payment for any goods and services. So in theory, you can walk into a McDonald's in El Salvador and pay with the cryptocurrency. Tax contributions might also be able to be paid with Bitcoin. So for the past two decades, El Salvador has actually been using the US dollar as a legal tender. This will stay as a currency in El Salvador, but now Bitcoin will also be an option. So in order to discuss this world first event in which El Salvador adopted Bitcoin as a legal tender, I am joined by my fellow Latam Dialogue team member, Carlos Javier Perez. Hola, Carlos. Hola, Sonia. Thank you so much for calling in. We are having a nice Zoom chat. Um, I'm in Brussels and Carlos is in Ecuador. And he has read the whole law that we're discussing, haven't you, Carlos? I have indeed. Yeah, so we are going to try and delve into the realm of cryptocurrencies. So I don't know that much about cryptocurrencies. I feel like I feel like cryptocurrencies is one of those things where either everyone kind of invests and knows about it, and then the other half of the world has absolutely no idea. So for those of you who are like me, Carlos, can you please briefly explain what cryptocurrencies are and then specifically what Bitcoin is? Of course, Sonia. So cryptocurrencies are deemed digital currencies, which in theory can be used to buy and sell goods and services. So similar to what we use as money, but just digital. Bitcoin specifically is a type of cryptocurrency which was created in 2008. And it is exactly that, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. And it is decentralized. So what does that mean? It means that they're not controlled, nor are any transactions approved by a single entity. In the case of the money we use nowadays, if I wanna send you a transaction, it has to go through a third-party entity, which is my bank, your bank, mm. and we trust that our banks would do that. In the case of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in general, we should be without any need of a third party to transfer money between each other. And that is the idea of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. I see, I see. Okay, so how is it going to work in El Salvador? So following the approval of Bitcoin as legal tender in El Salvador, the government now has 90 days for the implementation of the law to take effect. The decree is actually surprisingly short given that it's a new legal tender that's being accepted in the the country. But what we currently know is that the government will guarantee convertibility to dollars 
through a 150 million trust at the country's development bank called Bandesa, with the price of Bitcoin being continuing to be freely established by the market. So what does convertibility into the dollar mean? That means that if you have one Bitcoin and you go into Bandesa, you will you can exchange that Bitcoin for the if it's equivalent value in dollars. I see. Okay. Now, President Bukele has said that they will exchange merchant bitcoins to dollars at the value that the merchant priced at the time of sale, irrespective of bitcoin fluctuations. Mm. So, what that means is, if I sell you a shirt and I say it's 0.5 bitcoin or $20 per se, and you give me the 0.5 bitcoin, regardless of whether bitcoin goes up or down, if I go to band or sell, they will honor the price that I'm selling my good at. So the $20. Okay, so it's basically a way of taking the risk out of it. Correct. So Bandesal will assume the fluctuating risk, which is immersed in Bitcoin. Okay. So let's, let's backtrack a bit because to the reasons why this has happened in the first place. So El Salvador's president, like right after the law was passed, he tweeted... It will bring financial inclusion, investment, tourism, innovation, and economic development of our country. Can you just explain how this adoption of Bitcoin as a legal tender in El Salvador is going to lead to financial inclusion, investment, tourism, and these other benefits mentioned in his tweets? Of course. So the idea that Bukele puts forward with financial inclusion is because now there's no intermediary, There's no bank in between. It is the duty of the country to promote financial inclusion. Hence, by using Bitcoin, it will be easier, in theory, to get all these people that have been shunned away from the financial system to be included again through Bitcoin. That's the point he's making with financial inclusion. With investment, he is hoping that um, Bitcoin miners will move to El Salvador um, and by mining Bitcoin, they will consume electricity, people that live there, hence increasing investment. And tourism, he's now offered anyone that invests three Bitcoins in the country will get residency in El Salvador automatically, no questions asked. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, that's what he's proposing. That's what he's saying. Now, An important point to make on the financial front is that I think headlines are overlooking a couple of things. First is that in the legislation, it states that establishment must accept Bitcoin in exchange for goods and services. Mm -hmm. Now, that's if you think about it, that's a bit twisted because... It's not saying that I recognize value in it and you recognize value in it. Hence, we, if we trade it, we'll both be happy. No, yeah. it's saying whether you like it or not, you have to accept it. With the US dollar, even if we're like in the middle of nowhere, if I say, I'll give you a dollar for your hoodie, you'll be like, yeah, because you recognize that dollar has value. Mm. Whereas in the law, it says you must accept it, whether you like it or not. It does have a caveat, which is that if the merchant is unable to provide the technology to process their transactions, then they don't have to. That's what the law says. But on Twitter, President Bukele has said otherwise. 
which puts a bit of things into question. Is it? Is it not? Yeah, I think also something that I wanted to quickly talk about when it comes to financial um, the benefits for financial inclusion is that I know we actually recently published an article on Latin Dialogue about how Bitcoin is being used in Cuba for remittances because of course there's a lot of Cubans who've emigrated to predominantly the United States of America and they then send money back to Cuba but of course a lot of people in Cuba don't have banks so a lot of startups are now increasingly being set up for to manage ways that which Cubans in America can send money back to Cuba through Bitcoin because it means that you can send money overseas without even having to have a bank does is this relevant for um, El Salvador as well yeah correct so 20% of of El Salvador's GDP is actually remittances which is oh, wow. 6 billion US dollars according to the World Bank as of 2019 now, a significant portion of Salvadorians sending funds back home are in small transactions, say, for example, $100 a month. And bank rates, bank rates currently take up about, you know, anywhere between 5% to 20% in foreign transaction fees. Whereas with Bitcoin, the idea is that because it is decentralized, it takes a significantly smaller portion, particularly single digits, Hence, at face value, it is really appealing to send remittances in Bitcoin. Mm. However, on the other hand, you have, you know, you need a device with access to the internet and 55% of people and 90% of rural homes in El Salvador currently lack the access to the internet that is required. Mm. So I'm kind of getting the sense that you are not entirely in favor of this adoption of legal tender. Um, Can you go into more details about what the drawbacks are, in your opinion? Um, And especially I have seen a lot of mentioning mentions of the IMF and what they will think of El Salvador adopting Bitcoin as a legal tender. Yeah, so international bodies such as the IMF and the World Bank have made it evident what their view is. The World Bank has said it will not help El Salvador implement this new legal tender. And the IMF has described the measure as having macroeconomic, financial, and legal issues with the adoption of the cryptocurrency. Now, if we take this as an indication, then that means that the current talks for the 1 billion aid that El Salvador currently has with the IMF or is looking to secure will be more challenging than previously anticipated as a result. So another drawback is that by implementing Bitcoin, it feels like a bit of a nudge to the United States uh, for a couple of reasons. First, we've seen the relationship deteriorate recently. And in addition, Bukele is also trying to strengthen relationships with China, who coincidentally is now cracking down on Bitcoin mining. And also, what a happy coincidence, El Salvador has received a 500 million loan, no strings attached from China. So that's something to take in mind. In addition, because of the decentralized nature of Bitcoin, it is a preferred payment method for criminal activity. Therefore, 
is by making Bitcoin a legal tender, it's basically putting a welcome sign for individuals that have been involved in criminal activity, have received funds in Bitcoin to move to El Salvador. With three Bitcoins, you get residency, no questions asked. You go to Bandasol, you liquidate your assets. And once you have US dollars and you no longer have those Bitcoins, that's it. Your hands are clean. You, you can live the rest of your life in El Salvador. And keeping in mind how quickly the measure was accepted, where it only took five hours for a completely new legal tender to be accepted in Congress. And the law itself is only two pages long. The whole document, it's only 10 pages long. It doesn't feel like proper discussion research has been done. Right. I actually saw um, Bukele, how he, he kind of um, discussed this drawback that a lot of people have been mentioning about um, the money laundering and how Bitcoin would increase it. And I think his, his sort of reaction or rebuttal was that criminals already exist anyway. So even if they adopt Bitcoin, it's just giving criminals a different channel, but even making it easier. If you're going to be a criminal, you're going to do it with the US dollar. And so he doesn't expect crime to increase, but I guess only time will tell. And I think it's a great thing that for the world to watch. I mean, cryptocurrencies have taken the financial markets by storm, haven't they? So we're going to see um, in this world first what happens. Um, but Carlos, thank you so much for explaining to us what cryptocurrencies are and what's happening in El Salvador. Thank you for having me. Hope <laughs> I helped. And of course, and of course, we'll see you in a podcast very soon. So for the second half of this podcast episode, I wanted to discuss Peru's recent elections. And in order to do so, I am joined by my fellow LATAM Dialogue editor, Isabel Leesk. Hi, Izzy. Hello again. Like every single week on this podcast, Izzy has been wonderful and has delved into the realm of Peruvian politics, which actually I don't think either of us knew that much about, did we, before we started researching? Not at all. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so now this is an expert and we are going to discuss the elections that were held in Peru on the 6th of June. So the outcome was that the more leftist candidates, Pedro Castillo of the Peru Libre Party, which in English translates to Free Peru Party, provisionally won a narrow majority of just over 50% of the votes, while his political rival, Keiko Fujimori, of the Popular Force Party won just under 50% of the votes. So even though um, Pedro Castillo won this, albeit small, but it was a majority, um, he has not yet been declared as the official winner of these elections. Isabel, why has he not been declared the official winner yet? So despite Peruvian officials declaring the ballot count complete on the 15th of June, um, Pedro Castillo has uh, yet to be declared the official winner as you say. Um, This is because the electoral authorities are still reviewing a number of legal challenges brought by both parties, but predominantly Fujimori's party, which accuses Castillo's party of fraud, essentially. And it seems that Fujimori is calling for about, I think, 200,000 votes to be annulled, um, votes that have mainly 
come from the poorest areas of the country, the, the rural areas. And this has obliged officials to re-examine balance, uh, ba- sorry, ballots, despite the lack of evidence of, of any foul play. But what I will say is that whoever wins um, this election is going to have to govern with a very fragmented Congress. And it is going to complicate any sort of radical changes at a legislative level that they want to bring in. And, and just one more thing is that I think it's it's one element of the elections that has that have made it one of the most contentious in Peruvian history, featuring two candidates who embody very polar opposite interests and, and visions for Peru's future. Okay, so let's talk about those two candidates. So you just said that they're polar opposites and that they represent very different aspects and sectors of society. I want to ask you firstly who Keiko Fujimori is, because I actually know that she is a very big figure in Peruvian politics. I remember when I was traveling through Peru in 2016, she was on every poster in the country. So (laughs) she's definitely not new to Peru's political landscape. And I think this is her third time running for president. And I knew, and she lost in 2016 and also before that in 2011. So can you just give me some more details? Because I think for our listeners, it's probably quite important in understanding these elections and Peruvian politics to know who um, Keiko Fujimori is and what her political party represents. Sure. Um, Keiko Fujimori is a former congresswoman from the right-wing popular force party, as we've said before. Um, Her father is the very controversial former president of Peru, Alberto Fujimori, who is currently in prison for committing crimes against humanity, corruption, and a load of other things, including mismanagement of government funds. And a quick side note here to give listeners a bit of context, um, Peru is still very divided by the legacy of Alberto Fujimori uh, and his government, which um, were in power from 1990 to 2000, because while it brought economic um, stability and kind of alleged pacification of Peru's insurgent groups, which we'll talk about a bit later, on the other hand, it was a very autocratic government which committed a lot of kind of abuses Um, human rights violations. Um, So back to Keiko, in 1994, she was actually appointed First Lady of Peru by her father. However, she herself was detained twice on bribery charges and is still actually under investigation for possible involvement in organized crime and money laundering. Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Um, And uh, had she won this presidential election, the investigation would have been suspended for the duration of her five-year term as president. So you can kind of see why some people see her presidential run as an attempt to actually secure immunity from prosecution and also to pardon her father. Okay, so Keiko Fujimori is a very controversial, more right-wing figure in Peruvian politics. But having said that, it's looking more likely, well, more and more likely that Pedro Castillo is going to be the next president. As you said earlier, there's just some legal issues to iron out, for lack of a better term, which I think we see after a lot of Latin American elections where people and candidates try and contest it. But yeah, as I said, it's looking pretty sure that he will be the next president. But although uh, Keiko Fujimori is, you know, has a whole legacy of politics in the country, like we already said, um, Castillo is more of a newcomer to Peruvian, to the Peruvian political landscape. 
So what's his political ideology and what are his visions for Peru's future? Yep, so uh, Castillo is a former school teacher from rural Peru. He's a union activist leader and he represents the Free Peru Party. Um, as you say, he's a relatively new figure in the Peruvian political scene, but managed to gain a first place finish in the in the first election round in April. And yeah, Castillo, I'd say, is popular amongst the working class Peruvians, especially those living in rural areas. Um, his appeal is very much centered on the fact that he comes from these kind of humble origins and claims that he will fight against the private sector, nationalized key industries, etc. Um, his campaign campaign slogan was no more poverty in a rich country, which seems to have really kind of um, resonated with voters who are looking for a radical change in Peru. Um, and he's proposed a series of structural economic reforms, essentially meaning that he would try to create a new constitution that enables the state to act as um, a kind of market regulator. Um, but also important to say that during his campaigns, he's been he's received strong criticism for failing to address how he's going to tackle these kind of other key economic issues. And there's definitely fear that the economy could, I don't know, destabilize further if if he was when he becomes president. Yeah, the last thing I'd say is that, of course, this means that the Peruvian elites um, are looking at him with great caution. Um, especially his campaign promises to introduce higher taxes on, on mining firms, which is like a big, big thing in, in Peru. And it's evident that Fujimori knows how to take political advantage of the fear of, of socialism and radical change that his figure embodies. Mm, that is interesting. I think this fear of socialism and the radical left is very big in Latin America. Um, so it is clear that despite Fujimori's party's attempt to discredit Castillo, um, Peruvian citizens were very, like not very willing, because as we already said, the, um, the majority was quite small, but they were, a majority was willing to put their trust in this relatively unknown figure, as, um, as we've already said, he is very new to politics, over this figure who has been in politics for years and years and years. So why do you think that this is, um, and also something I also want to touch on is, do you think that has anything to do with the unrest that Peru has seen over the past few months? Um, yeah, Sonia, I do, actually. Um, I'm not Peruvian myself, obviously, so I can only provide a limited um, amount of insight into this. But it seems that the election results did not come as a complete surprise. And I think, you know, like in many other Latin American countries this year, social tensions and conditions generated by the pandemic have created space for controversial, quote, kind of radical voices like Castillo's. Um, and to add to, their, to this, there has been deep popular dissatisfaction with institutions and politicians that are still caught up in very high levels of corruption and impunity in Peru's Congress. And, you know, as highlighted by Fukimori's family reputation, which is not exactly the best. And this discontent has been exemplified by the popular protests we saw in November 2020 in response to the removal of President Martin Vizcarra, who was relatively popular with Peruvian citizens. And confusingly, and, and when I was doing research on this, it, it was quite difficult to understand how it all comes together. Vizcarra was so he was impeached by Peru's Congress for alleged corruption and mishandling of the pandemic. 
But Piscara himself had long campaigned against corruption, which made him enemies in Congress, but also made him popular with Peruvians. Um, so then his removal was kind of seen as this attempted coup by the Peru's by, by Peru's political elite, which essentially caused people to come out on the streets and 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 protests against the kind of lawmakers. So basically, I think Castillo's election to office is not shocking, given that it seems like Peruvian citizens are sick of the traditional political elite for repeatedly failing to represent their interests, becoming embroiled in corruption scandals, um, and they've constantly, consequently chosen this kind of quite radical alternative I suppose. And so finally just before we finish this episode there have been allegations from the opposition so from Fujimori's party that Pedro Castillo as president could take Peru down a similar path as Hugo Chavez did in Venezuela and Evo Morales did in Bolivia. I think mentioning Hugo Chavez and Evo Morales is the favorite thing to do of more right wing Latin American <laughs> political parties in a way to convince people not to vote for the left. So no surprise there. And there have also been rumors uh, that Castillo has links to a Peruvian insurgent group known as the Shining Path, which if I've understood it correctly is one of the most radical and violent leftist organizations in Latin America. Do you think there is any truth in these allegations? So first of all, um, Castillo has himself insisted he is not a communist. He claimed, I mean, he's a kind of staunch socialist, but he claims that he will use democratic means to redistribute wealth. Um, so on that front, I think it's really too early to tell just how radical he's going to be, but it's clear that he's had to broaden his campaign kind of promises to fit a more center leftist electorate. Um, to receive this vote in the first place. Um, here, I'm also going to mention that despite being seen as this really radical figure, Castillo's personal ideologies are pretty socially conservative. He is against, you know, abortion. He's against gay rights. Yeah, I don't think he, his politics are really going to resonate with the young generation of Peruvians on the left, at least. So, yeah, there's all of that going on and secondly I, I've also heard that a shadow that follows Castillo around is that he allegedly is affiliated to a civil organization called um, the Movement for Amnesty and Fundamental Rights known as Movadet which is a political group that still sort of espouses part of the communist ideology of the Shining Path or the Sendero Luminoso in Spanish um, just to give it a little bit of context, the Sendero Luminoso were a militant Maoist armed group who engaged were engaged in a 20-year armed conflict with the Peruvian state um, in which about 70,000 people were killed, which is just a oh, crazy, um, crazy number. Uh, and, and, and it's important to mention that it's not, it wasn't just them that committed these atrocities. It was also um, the government and Fukimori's forces and, and it's... Yeah, it's, it's very complex. I'm not going to go into it too much. There's these allegations that Castillo endorses Movadef and sort of can relate to some of their ideologies. Personally, I have not found enough evidence to show that Castillo endorses Movadef, let alone the Shining Path group. Um, if anything, Castillo himself was part of the so-called Rondas Campesinas, which were self-defense groups made up of civilians from local areas that actually protected their communities um, from, from the Shining Path and other insurgent groups. Um, so if anything, I don't think Castillo 
if he was you know active at the time uh, in these groups when the um, shining path were operating i don't think he would have any reason to kind of align with their views and doing so would make him look very bad so yeah if, so no if anything i think that's probably propaganda being used by the opposition to, to further discredit castillo mm, that i guess that would make sense um so just really quickly we started off this episode by saying that Pedro Castillo has won a, um, a majority, but there's a lot of legal questions. Do you know at all when we expect to get a clear result? I am not completely sure. I believe in the next week it will become more transparent. I know that Castillo is already being recognised as the winner in Peru, in, well, in Peru and also across the globe. Mm-hmm. And today, I think, or maybe yesterday, Washington actually congratulated Peruvian authorities for, I quote, holding free, fair, accessible and peaceful elections. And um, Michelle Bachelet and other politicians have also just said kind of, you need to accept these results. But uh, Fujimori is using the kind of top lawyers in Peru to find any loopholes to try and and discredit Castillo's um, win. I guess she's not happy with losing a third time. (laughs) A third time, yeah, for the father in jail and... Her, her, she herself facing all these allegations oh probably doing everything she can um to yeah to change the the results well on that note i think that's all we have time for this episode thank you so much izzy for joining me again this week and speak to you're you welcome for the next episode yep looking forward to it and thank you so much to our listeners especially those that are still listening and have stuck to the end stay tuned in two weeks time for our next episode